Psalm 95, verses 1 through 11. Let's give our attention to God's word. It says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. As on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The Bible says that all men are like grass and that all man's glory is like the flower of the field. And that grass withers and flowers fade away, but God's word stands forever. Let me pray for us before we talk about it more tonight. Heavenly Father, what, uh, what, you, what we just said about your word is absolutely true. That your word will stand forever. We come and go. But your word is so important that it will outlast everything. So, Father, we pray that as we're here tonight and we have the privilege of hearing your word, that you would be so kind as to apply it to us, that you would open up our hearts so that we might uh, believe it, open up our ears that we might hear it. Father, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, be at work and that you would change us. Father, we ask that expectantly and hopefully in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we've all, no doubt, had the experience uh, of, being, of being not in the mood for something. Right? Maybe, um, maybe you've, had, you've had a bad day. Uh, you got a bad grade. Something like that. And a friend comes up and starts joking with you. Maybe picking at you a little bit. Something like that. And you're just, you're just not feeling it. Right? And you think to yourself, or, or maybe even possibly say, I'm, I'm just not in the joking mood right now. Um, you, you just don't feel like it. Uh, or maybe you're trying to decide what to do on a, on, you know, a weekend night, on Friday or Saturday night, and somebody suggests, you know, let's go to this place, and it's a place that's going to be really crowded, you know, sort of a big energy night. And you say, I'm just, I'm just not in the mood for you know, lots of people tonight. Uh, We've all been there, right? Sometimes it's about things that are no big deal and it doesn't really matter if your mood changes or not, right? Like where you go to eat and you say like, I don't really, I'm not in the mood for Chinese food or whatever. Sometimes it is about things that are big deals and your mood needs to change. Like you've got a test the next day and you you think I'm just not in the, just not in the studying mood. Um, Have you ever felt that way about worship? Either about actual, like, corporate, 
you know, maybe Sunday morning worship, or even just about your, in a sense, your own sort of personal, just sort of your attitude about God. Have you ever felt that way, that you're just, just kind of not feeling it, not in the mood? Right? Whether it's it worship, it's, the, it's maybe the songs you don't like, or somebody said something to you and it just got you in a bad mood, or it's some circumstance that you're experiencing, or any, you know, a million other things. What do you do? What do you do when you just, like if you're honest, you just kind of don't feel it, not in the mood? Um, I think that this psalm that we're looking at tonight, I think Psalm 95 can help with that. Uh, It's a call to worship. And I think it's a particularly good one for people that are struggling with feeling not in the mood. Not feeling in the mood to worship, maybe. Uh, This semester, if you've been with us, you know we're studying through the Psalms, selected Psalms. And we say every week that our theme is dealing with feeling. Right? Because psalms are songs. And songs traffic in emotion. Right? They, can help us, they can help us understand our own emotions. They can help us express how we feel. They can even help shape how we feel. And the psalms do the exact same thing. And Psalm 95, I think, helps us and, and calls us towards feeling worshipful. So we're going to look at three aspects of worship that it calls us to. Uh, it calls us to, number one, to sing. See that in verses 1 through 5? To sing, to be loud. Uh, secondly, the second thing we're going to look at is it calls us to bow down. Verses 6 through 7c, we'll call it. And thirdly and finally, we're going to see that it calls us to hear. The rest of verse 7 through 11. All right, so first, we see that it calls us to sing. Verses 1 through 5. Right, the psalm starts off by calling us to sing, to make a joyful noise uh, in praise and in thanksgiving to God. Right, it's, a call, it's a call to be excited. It's actually a call to get loud. The Hebrew words are sometimes used to indicate uh, something along the lines of like a war cry or a, or a, a, a call of alarm. And, and not that there's, you know, the idea is not that of danger, but the idea of, of excitement and, and being loud. So you get the idea of this sort of um, boisterous, almost rowdy kind of feel to it. And now you might be thinking that that's kind of hard to picture or imagine that really happening, depending on your you know, personality and tradition and those sorts of things. But uh, you might think, I, I, I don't really... Never really moved like that. But think about this. I'm, I might can convince you otherwise. Uh, have you ever been to a really exciting basketball game or football game? Uh, we went, uh, our family, earlier in the year uh, when Baylor, when the Baylor women played uh, UConn, right? Our family went to that. Some of you might have, no, it was before y'all were back, wasn't it? So none of y'all got to go. It was awesome and you missed it. Sorry. <laughs> Um, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Baylor won. Uh, historic victory. Um, and there were, what, 10,000? It holds about 10,000, right? There were 10,000 people there that had no trouble getting really excited and loud and boisterous, right? 
and shouting, and, and it was just filled with this excitement. And now look, I, that's not to guilt trip us, right? Like, well, if you can get excited about basketball, why can't, get you, why can't you get excited about Jesus? Um, it, so it's not to go that route, but it's to show us, right? It's just to sort of paint a picture of, of what this psalm is talking about, a little of the flavor of what it's picturing. So what is it, what is it that would cause that kind of reaction in people? Why should we worship and praise like that? What would, what would spark that? Well, what sparked it at the basketball game? Well, we saw something that we thought was great. Right? I mean, if you just boil it down to its sort of most common factor, we saw something that we thought was awesome. And we got loud and excited and into it. And that, I think, is, that's what the psalmist is doing here in this first section. Look at verse 3. He tells us why. He says, get loud, sing, come on. Why? For, because the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. He basically says we should be excited. We should get loud. We should be engaged in that, in that way. Because God is amazing. Because there is nothing else like him. That he is bigger. That he is better. That he is more everything than you can imagine. There's nothing else like him. And so he's... He, He's trying to stir up our emotions by talking about God's greatness. Look what he says, verses 4 through 5. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. He's showing us how, how truly amazing God is. He's trying to stir us up by saying, look... This is the God that created everything. This is the God that there is nothing else that you could worship that even touches him. He's bigger than everything. Uh, it talks about him creating the sea, right? The sea uh, in, the, in biblical times, right, was the sort of the symbol of all things unknown and chaotic and sort of scary, and you get the picture that God is the one that created that. He owns it. It's in the palm of his hand. He's saying, not only did God create everything, but he's in charge of it all. There is nothing, there is no power that is beyond him. He's the biggest, Beth. There is nothing like him. It's, it's, almost, like he's, it's almost like watching some sort of highlight video to, right, if, to get a hype video to get you excited about a game. He's, uh, it's like rehearsing, or sorry, it's like watching one shining moment, you know, at the end of the tournament, right? When I set up our, our RUF campus ministers bracket and I send out the email, I always put a link to one shining moment. I say, if you need some help getting exciting about, your, about making picks, watch this. And I always watch it. And if you remember from last week, do what? Cry through the whole thing. It's awesome. You sit there and you watch one shining moment, if you're me, and... 10 other people. And it, it works you up. You get, and you say, that's right. Basketball is awesome. That's what he's doing. Uh, it's like, right. It's a little bit like how people want to watch the goat, 
right? Goat, greatest of all time. I know you get that, right? People want to watch the, you know, who are the people that we consider to be the goats, particularly in sports? There are a lot of sports illustrations in this sermon. Get ready. Uh, you know, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, uh, Tom Brady, right? Now there's debates about all that, right? But, but people want to see that because they are so different. If you're a professional athlete, you're different. And they take it even beyond that, right? I'm a, I like to play golf. I am a golfer, right? I'm no good, but I'm a golfer. And so Tiger Woods, right? I, I tend towards the golf illustration, Tiger Woods. What he could do, particularly in his prime, like, you know, in that sort of 10 years where he was on top, it was amazing. There was no one else on the planet that could do what he did. And just to be, I mean, quite honest, it was just thrilling to watch it. You just, he could do things that nobody else could do. But think about that. Tiger, Tiger Woods was just hitting a golf ball. Let it stir your mind and your heart for just a minute to think about the fact that you're called, you're invited to come and to see and to, to be around and to, to witness this God who so much more than just someone that can hit a golf ball, right? He created people, right? Think about it. People, the human body was his idea with muscles and bones and nerves and, and, and a brain, right? That, that can coordinate to do something like hit a golf ball. It was his idea and he has the power to do it. He's the one, right, all the physics that I have no clue about, but I'm sure it's a ton, that goes, that's behind, involved in a golf ball sailing through the air. And even the gravity that brings it back down, all of that was his genius. He made it. He upholds it all. He created beautiful grass and blue sky. And he directs. He's in charge of everything from every little blade of grass to the most powerful countries in the world to black holes. There's nothing outside of his power. There's nothing like him. And if we really do see him for who he really is, and the more that we are able to see him for who he really is, it will be thrilling to us. The psalmist is trying to stir us up to see how amazing and just completely different God is. We're going to come back in just a minute and make some more application. Uh, But for now, we're going to move on to our second point. Uh, The second section that we see there, uh, verse 6 and 7, or most of 7, we see that the psalm calls us to bow down. Look at verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. All three of those words, worship, bow down, kneel, they all have the same idea, the sort of same root concept, which is to, you could basically sum it up with bow down, right? The idea is they all, to get down, to, to be low before God. To be in a sense, on your face, prostrate before God. So first, 
what we looked at, and, and it, look, the order is not necessary, but right, the first section, the psalmist calls us to be loud and, and engaged and excited. And now he calls us to be quiet and to be humble uh, on our faces, to be overwhelmed before God. It's very, very, very different. Um, have you ever had an experience where you saw something and you were just overwhelmed by it? So much so that it just, it just sort of shuts you up. Um, if you've ever been to the, the closest I could come to this, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, uh, you might have experienced that. Right? If, you, if you go to the Grand Canyon, you see that, that everybody there is doing the same thing. At least when you first, first see it, everybody there is doing the same thing, which is nothing. They're just staring at it. Because it's, right, it's, it's so huge that it just sort of overwhelms you. And there's just not much to say. It just, you feel its hugeness. And there's a sense in which you feel, right, yourself in perspective. You just, you feel in a sense how small you are. It's just overwhelming. And now look, I, it's not exactly the same thing. It doesn't actually make you kneel or bow down, but I think you get the idea, right? It's overwhelming and it just, it just makes you shut up and look at it and be overwhelmed by it. And that's a little bit of what the psalmist is saying here. All right, but did you notice there, there's something interesting here? All right, so why does the psalmist say that we should bow down and kneel and worship? Verse 7 For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He says the reason that we we should be like that, what's going to stir us up to that, is is to see how God cares about us. How God cares about his people. And because of how, how near to his people he is. He's our God. He uses the imagery of the shepherd and sheep, right? A shepherd that takes very good and careful care of his sheep. All right, so stop and think about that for a second. That after talking about this immense, almighty, uh, amazing, incredibly great God that's so much bigger and better than anything else, that what puts him on his face, what overwhelms him is that God cares so much about us. And I think it's interesting because there, in, in some ways it seems backwards, doesn't it? Or it's at least not what you might expect. And now look, I, I got an asterisk here and I'm, I'm going to tell you, I didn't read, of all the commentators and scholars that I read, I didn't read anyone that said, that said what I'm seeing about this. So it very well may not be right. The points are still good no matter what, right? The points are still the same, but I think I'm onto something here. I could be. Um, I think that the psalmist is giving us somewhat of a unique and slightly, slightly different look or sort of way of thinking about our worship very much on purpose to sort of help us sit up and take notice a little bit, to hear it afresh. All right, so what do I mean? Because we would probably expect for it to be the other way around. And I think it's fair to say that we see that sort of most often in the Bible. 
That God is absolutely transcendent. Right? That He is holy. And that He is other and He's different. He's amazing. And so much so that it overwhelms people. That people are put on their face and they're bowed down because of how amazing and great and big He is. You see it in Psalm 99, just a couple of Psalms later. And that God is so imminent and so near and so caring and so loving and personal that it causes people to sing and to shout and to be excited. And now look, let's be clear, right? That's, those are absolutely true. But I think there's a little bit of a sense of a switch here. And I think it can help us think about things in sort of a fresh way. Another little piece of evidence, right? Look at verse seven, right? We would ex- you would expect it to say what? The sheep of his pasture and the people of his hand, right? In Psalm 100, that's what it says. Sheep of his pasture, but he switches it. It's the people of the pasture and the sheep of his hand. I think this is kind of a thing that the psalmist does. Um, the psalmist is calling us to worship. He's, he's stirring us up and he's doing it by showing us how utterly humbling and absolutely beautiful it is that this amazing and infinite and transcendent God cares about us. He is that big and that amazing and that different and He cares about us. And like I said earlier... There's a sense in which this sort of circles around on itself, right? That the points inform one another. Uh, and it, it helps us to understand more about why we can sing and shout about the fact that God is so great and big and almighty. Because if God really is that big and amazing, and he cares that much for us, What that means is that his bigness and his amazingness, which is not a word, is for us. That we're called, that that we're invited to worship God, not just because he just is objectively in and of himself big and amazing and other. Though that is absolutely true. And if that's all it was, we would still be called just obligated, in a sense, to worship But what you see is that because he is that and he is loving, that bigness, that amazingness, his whatever, it's for us. That all of his resource and his power and his infinite, it's for you. And that will make you sing and shout. In other words... It means that you have a God that loves you and he wants the best for you. And he's in charge of every single grade. He's in charge of every single job. He is in charge of every single job interview. It's at his disposal. He is Lord over every sickness. He is in charge over every circumstance. He is in charge over every bit of evil in your heart and in the world. And that brings up a number of questions. I know. 
But all of that, all of his bigness, all of his might, and all of his everything, it's for you because he loves you. So that means that we don't have, we don't have to worry. Now granted, he may not do things the way that we would want him to, but we can know that he loves us and he's in control of everything for our good. And that will stir us up to sing and shout. Thirdly and finally, the last thing we want to look at that we're called to in worship is to hear. And I have actually hear slash soften. Uh, This is the very end of verse 7 through the end of the psalm. And here is where things seem to get weird, right? Um, It seems to take a really strange turn, and so strange that people over the years, and I mean like hundreds and hundreds of years, have not really known what to, some have not known what to do with this and thought it's so weird that that their conclusion is that this is um, some sort of mistake. This is two psalms that have been put together, you know, incorrectly, uh, material added in, there's just been a mistake, and I don't think there's any you know, real evidence to think that. So I think we need to look at it for what it is, for what it says. And like, like I'm sort of trying to pitch to you, I think our psalmist just kind of thinks about things a little differently, which I think is helpful. Um, so look what he says at the very end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day in Massah in the wilderness. So all of a sudden, in the middle of this great call to worship, right, this beautiful, you know, come and let us bow to, you know, it's beautiful thing. All of a sudden, we get this sort of just like the gears shift, and there's this warning. And it seems to be sort of deadly serious, and, and it is. So what's the deal? All right, well, so what, what is Meribah and Massah? Well, it comes from Exodus 17, Exodus 17, uh, the Israelites, um, so this is just after they've been brought out of Egypt, right? The great Exodus story. And, all right, so keep in mind what's happened. Um, They've been enslaved for 400 years. And God says, I'm going to bring you out. And then he brings all the plagues on Egypt, but not on Israel. And he lets his, you know, Pharaoh lets the people go. God brings them out. And then they, you know, the whole Passover event, right? And then uh, they get up next to the Red Sea and the army's chasing them and he parts the Red Sea and they walk across it. And then the army chases them and he parts it back. He unparts it. And he kills the other army. And they end up on the other side. And it seems like just like as soon as they get there in chapter 14, they start to complain. And they start to quarrel. They start to make lodge complaints against God and basically say, you don't care about us. I mean, it feels like they touch dry land, right? The, the waters part behind them. And, and then they're just, you don't, what, you don't care about us. And in Exodus 17 is when they, they show up at this place and there doesn't seem to be any water and they accuse God and Moses. You don't care about us. You've just brought us out here to kill us. Uh, Meribah is the Hebrew word for quarreling and com- or complaining. And Massah is the Hebrew word for testing. Because even though they had seen those amazing acts of God's kindness and his, his power and his grace and his love, 
They basically say, you don't, you don't love us. You're just going to kill us. And so they put God to the test to see if he really did love them or not. And so fundamentally their problem is that they don't trust God. They, they didn't, they couldn't, they didn't hear his word. They didn't take him at his word. That he would, that he loved them. They didn't believe his promises of kindness. They basically turned away from him and went astray, as the, as the text says here, because they thought, no, you, you cannot trust this guy, this God. You can't, he's only out for himself. He doesn't care about us, and they turned away. And so I think very simply the psalmist is saying, don't do that. Don't turn away from God. Turn toward God. And and do it now. Now is a great time. It's not too late. And I want you to see that while this is very much a stern warning, and I don't want to make it less than that, I want you to see that it's also an amazing invitation to God's grace. That it's actually probably not as strange as it might sound in the text. Um, and it actually points us very vividly to God's grace. Um, how so? So in other words, this is not God saying like, you know, come uh, uh, worship and you know, bow down and worship. And if you turn from me, I will break you. Try it. That it's actually... Yes, it is a warning, but it's also this invitation. All right, how so? Let's go back to Exodus 17. Do you remember how that pretty nasty little episode resolves? The people basically bring a a charge against God. And they want to have a trial. And God says, let's have a trial. You're accusing me of not loving you. Let's have a trial. And he tells Moses, bring the elders, right? We've got a jury. Bring the staff with which you struck the Nile, uh, uh, the rod of judgment, right? Bring the, um, yes, the representative of judgment. And let's have a trial. And he says, I'm going to stand before you on the rock. It's the only time in scripture where God stands before someone. It's always the other way around. People stand before God. God says, I will stand before you on the rock. And what does he tell Moses? He says, take the staff of judgment, strike the rock, representing me. I will be standing on that. Bring down judgment on that. And what happens? Water comes out of the rock. God says, you want to have a trial? Let's have a trial. Here's how the trial should have gone. You want to have a trial? Let's have a trial. Exhibit A through like... Little Z, little Z, right? He could line up all the evidence. Right? Exhibit A, the Exodus. I saved like a million of you from horrible slavery by amazing works. Remember that? Do you really think I don't love you? They should be on trial. He says, let's have a trial. I'll put myself on trial. I am, by the way, absolutely perfect in this. And I will bear the punishment. Someone's wrong, and I'll take it. 
Right? This whole thing is supposed to call to mind God's grace. And for us, it, that's God's grace in Jesus Christ, who literally came and was put on trial and bore the judgment. And it's very clear in the New Testament that that story, 1 Corinthians 10, I think, yes, it, it, Paul explicitly says that that rock was Jesus, was a pointer to Jesus and what he was going to come to do. Hebrews 4, or rather Hebrews 3 and 4, which we studied last semester, uh, picks up on this. It quotes Psalm 95 to people that are tempted to leave Jesus, right? And he quotes Psalm 95 and he says, no, please don't do that. Today is the day of salvation. He gives them this amazing offer of God's grace. It is a warning, but it's an invitation. It's like we went to, uh, we went to the zoo uh, over spring break on uh, Thursday, I think, of spring break. Took the kids. Don't go on, don't go on spring break. It's a bad idea. There was like a millionish people there. And so what do we tell our kids when we, you know, about to go in? We say, stay with us. Stay with us. Don't leave. Do not leave us. Bad things happen when you leave us. Only bad things. Stay with us. Now, you can hear that as a warning. And there, there's a sense in which it is. Very much so. Don't leave. Bad things. Stay, right? And it's an invitation, right? Because you could hear that and say like, oh, typical parents, so restrictive, you know, just want to, you know, curtail my freedom. And I'm sure we're heading there one day, but, you know, um, just want to, you know, just want to keep me, you know, from having fun. Or you could hear that as an invitation. Stay with us and we will keep you safe. Because we love you. That's what this is. And the last thing, real quick, I want you to see that this is an in, who this is an invitate a warning and invitation to. It's to the worshipers. This is to the people of you know in this case to the people of Israel, not to the Gentile, the pagans out there like you know you people out there. You need to. This is to the the people that were already there. Uh, to people like us, which is why the author of Hebrews picks it up, right? To the church. And he says to them, the invitation is today, if you hear his voice, repent. It was today, right? When is this today? Well, to the author of this psalm, it was whatever BC. And the Hebrew, Hebrews guy picks it up in the first century and he says, today, to today. And the same is true right now, 2019. If you hear his voice, then move towards him. And that means if you, if right now you're thinking, my heart is not stirred up. My heart is cold. Then the good news is today, right now, move towards him. He's saying, don't, don't, don't go away. Don't be like them and go away. Come towards me because I love you. That's the good news and that's the invitation to you. Let me pray. Heaven, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that reality. Uh, we praise you for it and we pray that you would make that 
truth reign in our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.